Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Do you know what I don't hear enough of today? Dialogue. Honest-hearted, biblically-informed, respectful dialogue. So often we silo ourselves off in echo chambers with our doctrinal comrades, occasionally lobbing Molotov cocktails at the other side, never taking the time to understand them, much less ask the question, could I be wrong on this? My goal here in this Holy Spirit series is to get various perspectives out there, We heard John Truitt a couple episodes back make the case that the gifts of the Spirit are available today to all Christians, while Greg Diebold explained why he believes tongues have ceased even though the other gifts remain. Today and next week, the two of them are going to engage, not as sworn enemies taking cheap shots at the other side, but as brothers who agree on way more than they disagree. Here now is episode 377, Speaking in Tongues Discussion, Part 1, with John Truitt and Greg Dival. Thank you so much, John Truitt and Greg Dival, for being here with me today on Restitutio. John, let me start with you. A couple weeks ago, you shared about why you are a continuationist, which is the, the technical term for someone who believes that the manifestations of the Spirit continue into the present, and you made three major arguments. One was that this is a default assumption when it comes to any doctrine or practice we come across in the New Testament, that it continues to our day. Secondly, that you provided a number of quotations from the 2nd and 3rd century of Christians who continued to manifest the Holy Spirit after the period of the Apostles. And third that you, in your own experience, have decades of seeing, hearing, and speaking gifts of the Spirit. Uh, would you say that that's a fair summary of your position? Yeah, I, I would, and I'd probably add to that first one that uh, exegetically, I, I think that's the only conclusion from the New Testament, that there really isn't a thing, hey, these have ceased in the New Testament. There's certainly no statement like that. Um, so. I would combine those two concepts that you see it throughout the New Testament and everything else in the New Testament, we're thinking, well, this continues. But I would also say that you can have things in the New Testament. Certainly you could have that New Testament said stopped, but you'd you'd have to have that and you'd have to have some explanation of that. Okay, very good. And Greg, last week you laid out what you believe on this subject. And to start, I was thinking you would affirm cessationism, which is the belief that spiritual activity had ceased after the apostolic era, but instead you affirmed healing and miracles and prophecy and even exorcism, uh, but denied that tongues continue to our day as well. So would you say that that's roughly what you were saying? Is that a fair summary, or would you like to add or correct that at all? Yes, I was thinking afterwards, Sean, when you asked me, am I a cessationist? And I gave you a one-word answer, no. Uh, (laughs) And I think it took you a little bit by surprise. Uh, Yeah, it did. Uh, But uh, perhaps I should have been more accurate. Uh, I had in my mind, uh, I suppose, whether you're asking me whether certain gifts have ceased. I would probably say I'm a limited cessationist or a qualified continuationist. The New Testament says very clearly, for example, that uh, the the apostles' office, uh, for example, has now uh, ceased. Uh, Their foundational ministry has passed. And it would appear that the New Testament does say that there were certain signs and miracles and mighty works which were the mark of an apostle. Uh, So if the apostles have uh, passed from our scene, I'm imagining that the attestating miracles with that office have also uh, ceased. However, Mm -hmm. the overarching umbrella of the whole New Testament is that Jesus Christ is alive. He is Lord. Uh, He is the head of the church and he has given certain gifts to the church for the uh, upbuilding of the saints, for the work of the ministry. So there, there obviously is a continuation 
uh, of many of the, uh, if not most, of the gifts that we read of specifically delineated in the New mm -hmm. Testament. It, perhaps it's more a question, Sean, of the, the degree and uh, perhaps the, the frequency or the number of the apostolic gifts uh, as opposed to whether they are you know, exercised to a much more limited degree uh, in the church today. Uh, however, uh, you're correct in your uh, you know, summation uh, that I, I have serious questions, particularly with the gift of tongues, so-called. And I think the New Testament mm -hmm. does give us certain indications that they have ceased and the purpose for them has gone. Okay. But that would be, uh, you know, probably the, the main difference between myself and John. Yeah. 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 That's what I'm hearing as yeah. well. And so what I'd like us to do then is to focus on that one issue. I know if I asked John, what should we focus on? He, he would want to focus on prophecy. Uh, based on our previous conversation, that's uh, very important to him, and I can see why, based on 1 Corinthians 14, where Paul says that we should earnestly desire to prophesy. Mm. Uh, but uh, I think we have a lot of agreement on that. I'm sure we have some dis disagreement on that, but uh, I think it would be good for us to zero in on tongues here mm -hmm. for the remainder of our discussion. Not that you couldn't talk about something else if it was relevant, but uh, that seems to be where... The biggest disagreement is so uh john just starting with you how would you like to get going here with uh some back and forth let me just say something before we go into the tongues because i think there's another interesting topic that uh, that i think greg and i would agree wholeheartedly on that i think is really really important in this subject and that is the dramatically poor teaching that has gone on in the charismatic and pentecostal church on this subject and that has led to a lot of confusion and bad practice and those kinds of things. And he certainly has highlighted some of that in the in the previous podcast, as well as in some of his writings. I would agree with that. I think there there has been that part of the problem with this subject today is that a lot of the experience of the gifts of the spirit in the broader church uh, and the teaching of that subject has come out of you know Pentecostal and charismatic movements that frequently are teaching and or practicing things that you know, are obviously wrong in the scripture or you know more subtly wrong in the scripture and and lead to problems and confusion and talks about you know if a person comes into your your church and everybody's speaking in tongues they're going to say you're you're crazy you're mad and and yet that goes on and so i think that's another interesting subject because it needs to be corrected the the church needs good accurate teaching on this subject and good accurate mentorship and practice you know spreading throughout the church so that this vital important aspect of new testament christianity can return to the church in its proper form and this is probably where i would begin my experience with with speaking in tongues it, it both from my own background and from you know being involved with uh, with charismatic and pentecostal churches um, over the last 20 years or so knowing a lot of charismatics and having conversations uh, with them about this particular subject of speaking in tongues that i've learned a lot that what they believe about that subject is fairly different than than what I was taught, what I what I conclude from the scriptures, and how I I, I would go about teaching it to other people. In the in the charismatic Pentecostal churches, they and they, they muddy this water, so it's a little tricky to kind of ferret this out. But they basically teach two different things. They teach speaking in tongues, and they believe that's a gift. They do believe it's a, a human language. Um, or they would say, you know, either a human language or an angelic language. I, I think Greg's um, teaching on that is interesting, and I, I don't want to comment on that because I, I want to spend more time with his teaching on that. So but they do believe it's a, an actual language. They believe only some people get that, and that in the church it must be interpreted. But then they also believe that every believer that's, that has received the Holy Spirit uh, gets a heavenly prayer language. And they mean something different by that. And that's really a lot of what uh, uh, Greg, I, I think, is talking about. That's really what is happening there. That's what they're talking about. That's what they're doing is 
a heavenly prayer language. And, and I think that's the beginning of the problem is this, that teaching, because the second one isn't scriptural. That's not a, an actual gift of the spirit and it's not a real thing. And, and you see it very frequently. It's what they're doing when you're in a charismatic church and maybe everybody's up, you know, praying or singing or whatever. And you hear people all, all around you speaking in tongues, quote unquote, speaking in tongues in their minds, what they're doing is they're doing their heavenly prayer language. And they believe that's not a real language. They believe that that's, that's a thing that God supernaturally gives to them that's between themselves and God. And it's why they don't believe that they're doing something wrong, according to the scriptures. Oh, because they're not doing what Paul's talking about. They're doing this other thing. Now, there's a lot of charismatics that don't really think it through that much and don't understand that. But if you talk to enough of them, you get to that picture. And so when you hear a heavenly prayer language, that's what a lot of times that's when you're hearing that babbling. It's just it's the same few syllables over and over again. And it doesn't sound like a language at all. There's no language that sounds like that. And, and they would agree with that. They, they don't think it's a language that has caused no end of confusion. Whereas in my background, we weren't taught that at all. We, we were just taught speaking in tongues as it's taught in the scripture that it's it's a language and it's going to sound like a language and it would be it's the normal mechanics of languages and you know all that kind of stuff. Over the years, as I have continued to study, as I came out of, of my particular original faith tradition, over the years, as I've continued to study and tried to correct along the way, there are things that, that I have corrected in my practice and teaching from the scripture that was not what I was originally taught. So that today in our, our ministry, Allegiance to the King, what, what we teach and practice is not going to be the same as what you would typically get in a charismatic church. And so it's kind of funny because when you come to the subject of gifts of the spirit, because there's this predominance amongst the, the Pentecostal charismatic world of how that's taught and done, there's sort of this automatic thinking about if I talk about speaking in tongues, or I talk about prophecy, or I talk about discerning of spirits, or any of those kinds of things, or just the gifts of the spirit as, a, as a, in a general sense, I probably am not meaning the same thing that that person is necessarily thinking when they're talking about it. And it takes some time for us to converse back and forth to get on the same page about what am I actually talking about. Are we agreed then between the two of you that speaking in tongues is not the same as a heavenly prayer language and that whatever a heavenly prayer language is as Pentecostals may define it today is not what we're going to be talking about in this conversation here. Yeah. Yes. All right. So let me bring up one of the points that Greg made that I think would be a, a disagreement. And that is that uh, speaking in tongues uses the gift as a sign calling unbelieving Jews to repentance. How would you develop that, Greg, just a little bit to explain that point? And then uh, I'd like to hear John respond back. Mm, certainly. Uh, just on, to comment on what John has said so far, I, I certainly don't see anywhere in the Scriptures Christians practicing a heavenly prayer language. As I've said in my articles, I would put that particular phenomenon in, the, in one of three categories. Either it's psychologically induced, uh, as a lot of non-Christian uh, or indeed secular sources would uh, highlight, there is a hypnotic aspect to it. Uh, I would certainly uh, put it in a, a, another category of, uh, therefore, of being emotionally, uh, you know, uh, disruptive or, or not helpful to the person who's doing it. It's a, it's a total distraction to our spiritual life. And then, of course, uh, uh, even as John has been saying, if you go way back to, to the beginning of the modern Pentecostal movement, when you get, uh, you know, the, the uh, fellows like uh, Parham, you know, they soon found out that what they believed was the gift of languages when they sent their missionaries to China, for example, uh, it wasn't. And it created enormous uh, psychological issues for their adherents. Uh, and that's, I think, personally, I, I, and I stand corrected on this, but to the best of my knowledge, that was when this whole idea of justifying the experience uh, as being a heavenly prayer language rather than the gift of a language. 
I'm interested to, to ask uh, John a little bit further on uh, on uh, on that point. But uh, it was interesting that, um, of course, I think it was, uh, as I mentioned, Smith Wigglesworth who actually said that every Christian ought to be speaking in this heavenly language. It's the same, uh, you know, as the gift of salvation. Uh, it's for everybody. So they had to justify it very early on. So I personally have serious difficulties from the scriptures as to uh, a, a heavenly prayer language. As far as I can determine whether you're looking at the, uh, the actual uh, grammar, you know, the glossa, or whether you're looking at the, the usage of it in the scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, apart from a few cases where, uh, you know, the physical organ of the mouth is, is referred to, or the flames of fire that sat on the disciples at the, on the day of Pentecost is concerned, the, the huge majority of references to glossa are references to actual languages. So I have personally serious doubts about the the whole heavenly prayer language. And on that point, I would certainly endorse John's comments. Okay, well, let's let's move on to this other matter of the uh, unbelieving Jew. Oh, sorry, yeah, I didn't address that, did I? <laughs> I would not deny, as my articles suggest, that there is such a thing uh, on occasion in the context of evangelism where God will give a language that is being used in the world to assist the proclaimer of the gospel at a particular point for a particular urgent reason. So I'm not blanketly denying that God cannot and does not do that. I, as I mentioned, I, I personally know at least one missionary couple where that happened in Papua New Guinea. But certainly uh, the, the scriptures do indicate that primarily the initial reason and the, certainly the New Testament rationale for the practice of the gift of tongues was primarily uh, both to offer hope to and uh, the warning of impending judgment upon Israel, depending on their response to the Lord Messiah and his gospel. When Paul quotes that particular verse from 1 Corinthians 14, where he says that tongues are for a sign, uh, verse 22, or even earlier, uh, where he says in verse 21, in the law, uh, it is written, and uh, unfortunately our English translations add a few words here, but in the Greek it's by strange or foreign tongues and by the lips of strangers or foreigners I will speak to this people. Even so, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So then, uh, Paul's application here, languages are for a sign. So they are a sign gift, according to the apostle, uh, not to the believer but to unbelievers, and prophecy is for a sign not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. And then he goes on to talk about the whole church when they're assembled together. Tongues are a sign gift, I believe, uh, particularly to the Jewish people. Now, it's interesting if you go back in the Old Testament where Paul quotes from Isaiah 28, the whole of Isaiah 28 is about the response, uh, the hostility indeed of the Jewish people. Uh, who it seems were uh, mocking Isaiah's prophecies and his ministry and uh, making fun of him as though he was drunk. In fact, it seems like drunkenness was a particular problem at that time for the people and the priests. Uh, in fact, Isaiah talks about uh, the smell of alcohol in the air. These uh, Jews at the time, God says, all right, if you're going to mock my prophet and claim that he himself is uh, inebriated, then I will give you a judgment and it will be when you hear these uh, strange tongues, these foreign tongues in your land, uh, then you will know that my judgment has come upon the land. Now, of course, I only found this by the uh, interesting just yesterday as I was looking through the NIV study notes here on 1 Corinthians 14, 21, 22. Uh, this is what they say. Uh, and they actually agree with uh, some of the serious commentary on this. Quote, the passage from Isaiah 28 indicates that the foreign language of the Assyrians was a sign to unbelieving Israel that judgment was coming on them. Paul deduced from this fact that tongues were intended to be a sign for unbelievers. Now, I would add to that, not just any unbeliever, whether Gentile or Jew, but to the learned Jew who understood the purpose of the law or the Old Testament. And if you go back even earlier, this, of course, uh, this concept 
of God judging Israel by uh, sending foreign or Gentile tongues uh, upon his people goes back to Deuteronomy and where, where God, through Moses, says that uh, if uh, Israel disobeys the prophetic word, that uh, they will be hearing these Gentile tongues in their land, which, of course, should be dedicated to God and to his people. Now, uh, to rush on a little bit again, the whole, I think, the whole, and I've only just seen this quite clearly recently, the development of tongues use, and we only have three occasions where languages were used uh, specifically said in, in the book of Acts, the development of the book of Acts shows that the gospel, as it went out from Jerusalem and Judea to Samaria and to the, and to the, to the uttermost parts of the earth, met with increasing resistance from the Jews. Uh, and so I think whenever the Jewish people heard these miraculously given foreign languages and heard the mighty works of God through them, that they were to connect it, as Paul says, with the teaching that they were grounded in from the Old Testament law. Uh, now, Jesus himself also in Luke 21 talks about how when the Gentiles uh, destroy Jerusalem, this will be an indication of God's uh, heavy hand of judgment upon the land. So that generation from the apostles to uh, particularly to AD 70, when Jerusalem was raised by the, the Romans, was in a kind of transition phase, but their increasing rejection of the gospel, their official and growing hostility to the apostles and to the word of the gospel of Christ uh, meant that um, this phenomenon of uh, Gentile tongues giving the mighty works of God uh, was an indication that God's judgment was hanging upon them. Mercy was extended, salvation was being offered, but they had a limited time to respond. Paul is quite clear that uh, tongues are for a sign to the learned Jew who understood what the purpose was. Okay, John, how would you like to reply to that? So this is one of the, the test items. This is test number two on Greg's list. And, and this is one of the ones where I, I'm going to partially agree and partially disagree. So I, I think Greg has the right interpretation of 21 and 22. But there's some, some interesting things about that, that, first of all, it appears to contradict what Paul then follows with, right? So he says, uh, so then tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But then he goes on in the next verse in 23, and he says, but if an unbeliever comes in, you're all doing that. They're just going to say you're crazy. So how can it be a sign for them if that's the case, right? He's telling them, don't do that because an unbeliever might come in. So, so you kind of have to fare out what's going on here. I think there's good evidence that th this little section is a parenthesis or an aside, just making a statement about the, this subject that isn't necessarily exactly in the flow of the argument that he's making. So I do believe um, that's an accurate interpretation of why he's quoting this, that it is that the unbelievers there are the unbelieving Jews, and that that's why the quote from the Old Testament, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think that actually helps to explain why it then doesn't contradict the next verse. Um, because again, if it's, if it's an aside talking about this and, and he's saying, look, these things have purpose and that's kind of why he, he brings that, that up, then it starts to make sense. You know, Hey, there's a purpose to these things, but it, it has to, it has to actually edify people. So if you go from verse 20, brothers and sisters do not be children. You're thinking yet uh, in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. I think he actually then continues that line of reasoning in verse 23. Therefore, if the whole church gathers together and all the people speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, they will not, will they not say that you're insane? He's gone back then in verse 23 to, to talk about. That's what I want to say about the structure of that particular passage. First of all, where I would uh, depart, or these are two things that I would offer up as considerations uh, in, in light of, of, of what Greg is, is arguing for there. The first is, there's nothing to say that, that speaking in tongues as a sign to unbelieving Jews, hearkening back to the Old Testament, reminding them about uh, the Assyrians and what that meant and that kind of thing, would end in the first century that I, in my mind, there's no reason why it wouldn't continue to be assigned to unbelieving Jews until Israel returns to the Lord. So that's one. Second is that 
it's not the only purpose of speaking in tongues. Um, it doesn't say that it's the only purpose uh, for speaking in tongues. It just says that it is a sign to, it's, it's for a sign to unbelieving Jews, but that doesn't necessarily entail that it's unique purpose. And I think throughout the rest of this chapter, you can demonstrate that it's definitely not the only purpose. So for example, earlier in the chapter, it says that it edifies the individual who's speaking. And, and one, one thing that I, I would say about this section, uh, early on in the section, Greg makes a point about the section being, you know, reproof to the Corinthians. And certainly there's a lot of reproof going on to the Corinthians, but I don't think it's nece Paul necessarily is saying negative things about speaking in tongues as an individual to oneself, that, that it actually does do that. So there's a purpose, you know, edification to the individual spiritually. And then you also see, for example, in, I think it's verse 16. Yeah, for otherwise, uh, he's talking about speaking in tongues and the need for interpretation. For otherwise, if you bless God in the spirit only, how will the one who occupies the place of the outsider know to say the amen at your giving of thanks since he does not understand what you're saying? And so you can see in that a, a different purpose. All throughout this, He's saying, and if, actually, if you back up to uh, verse three, but the one who prophesies speaks to people for edification, exhortation, and, and consolation. And then he says in verse five, now I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but rather that you would prophesy. And greater is the one who prophesies than the one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets so that the church may receive edification. So in other words, if the person speaks in tongues and then interprets, the church receives edifying. So clearly that is a purpose of speaking in tongues with interpretation for the church, not for unbelieving Jews. So I think in, in terms of those two things, you can see, while I would agree wholeheartedly, again, I think Greg has exactly interpreted that section correctly, that it is talking about that it's a sign for unbelieving Jews to, hey, you need to wake up. I don't think it's the only purpose. And so because of those two things, that there's nothing to say that that purpose isn't true even today, and that it has other purposes, that the Jewish temple being destroyed and, and, and Judaism itself making major transformation after, the, uh, after that destruction doesn't really end speaking the, the, the purpose of speaking in tongues because there are other purposes. So that's what I would say about that. Uh, Greg, would you like to come back on that at all? Yes, yeah, certainly. I think we need to understand the uh, cultural context that Paul was addressing, which was, of course, if you go back to Acts 18, the development of and the founding of the Corinthian church, it was certainly a church which had uh, many Jews and many Gentiles. And certainly the hostility of the Jews there was very palpable. Uh, even to the point uh, where they took one of the uh, one of the servants, who obviously was rather sympathetic to Paul's message, and they beat him in front of Gallio, the Roman uh, uh, consul there, uh, in the hope to stir up some more trouble. Now, Paul was, as you know, in, in the church at Corinth uh, for longer than I think, if I'm correct, uh, than he was in stationary in any other church you know, in the capacity of his teaching and, uh, and ministry to the church and to the outsiders. So I think the church at Corinth was a, a cultural melting pot. And uh, there was clearly a lot of, um, shall we say, excitement in the meetings, uh, the Christian meetings, once they moved across the road from the synagogue and set up uh, their meetings in the, uh, in the hall over the road. Just to answer that point, a very good point that John makes, if you go to verse 23, it's interesting where he actually he seems to put two categories with the unbelievers. He talks about now the NASB translates it the ungifted. Uh, I think the word there in the Greek is the uninitiated, yeah. uh, as in as per like, you know, the trade guilds, you were initiated into the secrets of that particular trade and and, you know, that business. So he talks about uh, in verse 23, the whole church uh, all speaking together and there are ungifted and really that is the uninitiated, those who have no background of the, the meaning of the purpose of the law, which he's just given us in a couple of verses earlier as the sign gift to Israel. And then the unbelievers, 
uh, could, could cover certainly the pagan, uh, you know, non-Christians, as well as the unbelieving uh, amongst the Jews, or those who were still, you know, open but needing further persuasion. So I think there's, there's two particular classes of unbeliever there that he's talking to, and, he's, and specifically the sign gift is to those who were initiated uh, with, within the Lord, i.e. unbelieving Jews or now converted Jews who, who understood the purpose of tongues. So uh, now the other thing, of course, this is, is I think you're quite correct. One of the, the main divergences that I would have with John uh, would be whether tongues, uh, the purpose is also for personal edification. Uh, I think the context. Yeah, how do you the, handle that text? What was that verse? Uh, yeah, five? he speaks in an unknown tongue, edifies himself. I certainly read that in the context of the whole, yeah, verse four, the whole context of the three chapters uh, where he's talking about the church meetings, the public meetings. He's not talking about private prayer, nor private prayer, you know, uh, to, to build oneself up. Uh, and the one who's prophesying is doing it, obviously, for the edification of the whole church. Paul is actually reprimanding those who were doing this in the public meetings. And the whole, uh, you know, rebuke that Paul is giving to the practices here of their abuses was that they were seeking the, 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 what they thought were the more showy gifts, the more spectacular gifts. And they were enamored particularly by the gifts of utterances as from their pagan days, many of them. And so Paul is saying, look, if you're doing this, then you're not doing what you should be doing in the church meeting. So I, I think it's a reading into the text to say that he who speaks in an unknown tongue is doing really good because he's building himself up. Where I think Paul is saying the one who's doing this is cutting right across the gifts that are to be exercised by love, which are designed to edify and build up the entire body, the entire church. So that, that clearly is, a, I think, a, a departure where John and I would see and, and interpret that text. And the other thing I would just comment, uh, I think, John, if I'm correct in, in hearing you properly, uh, you, you seem to indicate that verses 22 to 24 in chapter 14 uh, were an aside, uh, well, I think was the word you used, and not in the flow of his argument. I, I think this is his core of his argument. This is his summation to this point, before he gets to further tests for the genuineness of the, uh, and, and use of the gifts, I think that uh, verses 22 and, and 23 are really at the heart of his teaching on the purpose for tongues. So certainly... You, you mean uh, verses 21 and 22 the in the law in 21 and then 22? Uh, yeah, yeah, 20, 20 to uh, 23, I think, were the ones that you, you quoted, yeah. So I, I certainly would see them not as an aside there. Uh, I hear what you're saying. I understand that, uh, you know, from your experience, that's, that certainly would, uh, would be, uh, you know, an appropriate way to see that. Uh, but I, I certainly would have problems with the dismissing it as an aside. Okay. Look, can I respond to a couple of things on that, Sean? Yeah, go ahead. One, one thing I would say is if you're going through the whole context of, of chapter 14, there's a, a couple of primary points that Paul seems to be making. Uh, one is about disorderliness, and yep. he covers that several times and, and wraps that up at the end uh, as well. And then the other, and, and the primary one that he hits on over and over again is that the gifts are intended in the context of the meeting to edify other people, not yourself. Yep. And that that's the main point that he's making throughout this section. It's both points, right? He's making a point about orderliness and not being disorderly. And he's making a point about the need for these things to be done out of a love for your brothers and sisters, that it's mm. the focus is on other people. There's a couple of things that he says in here, and I believe this is one of them, the, the, the 21 and 22 aside has to do with Paul basically saying, you better listen to what I'm saying. And he does it again, more straightforwardly, in my opinion, at the end, where he's going to say, you know, uh, if anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. But if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. That's a really, I mean, this is the apostle Paul, who's, yeah. you know, the leader of this, this whole thing. And, and, you know, later he's going to, you know, he's going to say some things in Second Corinthians that 
you know, listen, I'm going to come down there and I'm going to show you what an apostle can really do if you don't straighten up. And I think that's a little bit about what's going on here. And I think that's what's happening in what he's saying about that tongues are for a sign to these guys to wake up and listen to God. And I think that's why he does that there. Uh, because again, the, in my view, the context is about that the purpose of this is to edify one another. So why bring up a, hey, this is a sign of judgment for the Jews. I mean, you have to fit that into that context of, hey, this is supposed to be about each other and loving one another and edifying one another and comforting one another and encouraging one another. And all of a sudden he says this thing about the law. And, and again, if you do what Greg did, go back and read it, it's very clear. It's about judgment and it's about the, you know, a sign of judgment. Okay, why does he do that? And you, it kind of hangs out in your head as you continue on. And then you get to the end. It's like, you better listen to me. My opinion is that I think that's what's happening there in that verse. Wrong. Yeah, Greg, if I could uh, just yeah. clarify a little bit here. John says he's recognizing the role of tongues as a sign yep. to unbelieving Jews that you brought up. Yep. I'm interested in the question, well, why, why is it the case that if, it, if tongues has this role— Mm -hmm. Legitimate tongues, obviously, is what we're talking about, not any kind of shenanigans. Mm -hmm. uh, if legitimate tongues has the role of being assigned to unbelieving Jews, how does that mean that it ended in the year A.D. 70? I mean, right. we still have unbelieving Jews today. Sure. Walk me through why that, that makes sense that it's no longer active today. Sure, that's a good question. If I may just also back up very quickly— just, sure. to add, just to add, <laughs> to add to John's thing, the whole desire of the apostle here uh, to answer John's great point is that he wants them to reach this mature understanding as to what the purpose of particularly their abuse of the tongues were. It was their failure to understand the purpose, to grasp uh, what their intended purpose was, which was leading to an immature use and practice of the gift. That would be my answer to that. The, the purpose, you know, as he says there, you're failing to be mature in understanding the purpose. Now, to answer your, your particular, and this is where we, you know, to do it properly, we, we need to do it thoroughly and, uh, <laughs> and, and systematically. Paul has already told us in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, to go back there, where he mentions particularly three gifts where he talks about uh, and, and he contrasts the gifts of prophecy and tongues and the word of knowledge or knowledge with that which is going to last, which is love. Love outlasts them all. So he's contrasting these supernatural gifts uh, and, and puts them in the category of being transient or temporal or it's certainly less than critical than uh, the body being motivated and the gifts being motivated by love. Paul is saying here that uh, you can have all of the gifts, which it seems the Corinthian church did, and yet still be immature and still be carnal is what he, he actually use, uses that word earlier. They're fleshly. So in other words, to even exercise a supernatural gift is no guarantee that the promoter of that is a spiritual person. So he's contrasting the, the gift of, of prophecy, tongues, and knowledge with that which will last. Now, it's a little bit technical, uh, but to step it through, notice he says uh, in verse 8, love never fails, never, never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease, and if there is knowledge, it will be done away. But now we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. Uh, when I was a child, I used to speak as a child, think as a child, reason as a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, just as I know and I'll be fully known. Now, this is quite a difficult passage, I think, to exegete properly. But it seems to me and we can go into it if you want more detail for the listener, that Paul is, is making a, even a differentiation between the gifts of prophecy and of uh, knowledge, which are in part and which will be done away with. 
But then he puts, I think, tongues in a different category. He puts it in a different voice, in a, uses a different uh, type of an intransient verb, which means that they simply will cease. So if you link that up, when will tongues simply cease and stop of themselves? Uh, the sign gift, uh, as he mentions later, once the, the purpose for the sign is done away with, I think then, then the, the gift itself automatically passes into uh, non, being not, not important at all and, and no longer relevant. So now I don't know how much, how much more deep you want to go into that, but I would certainly think that once Israel was disbanded from the land, uh, dispersed among the nations, that the reason or the rationale that Paul has outlined for the gift is finished. I'm not saying that God can't give a miraculous gift of languages today in the purposes of evangelism. Uh, and certainly in the book of Acts, whenever tongues were historically practiced, they were not practiced in private prayer languages. Uh, they were in the context of speaking to others, to men, as indeed in Corinth. And they were in the context of evangelism and always with Jews present. So once those particular historic, uh, you know, sort of necessities had ceased, then I think the purpose and the rationale for tongues per se had also uh, become irrelevant. Now, I don't know if I've answered that properly or thoroughly enough, but that's roughly where I would put it. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested in just clarifying what you said there a little bit. Hmm. In 1 Corinthians 13, 8, it says, Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away with. If there are mm -hmm. tongues, they will cease. If there is mm -hmm. knowledge, it will be done away with. Mm -hmm. Your belief is that prophecy and knowledge are still available today, but tongues have ceased. And your yeah. case for that is the vocabulary use. Instead of the word katargeo, uh, which is the word for make of no effect, which yeah. is the same word used for prophecy and knowledge, mm -hmm. the word for cease is a different word that's used for tongues here, pavo. Pavo, yeah. You know, the actual word is pavsonte, mm -hmm. but uh, it's from pavo, which means to to cease. And yeah. So am I, am I getting the, the grammatical yeah, point you're making here correctly? Yeah, yeah, yeah I think so. And, and notice uh, later on when, when he said that he's put a difference between the, the three gifts, Notice uh, he, he then puts the in part, the two words in part apply only to prophecy and, and only to the, the knowledge. Uh, and he doesn't talk about tongues in part. Oh, I see. So in verse 9, verse 9, he grabs the last one and then the first one and he skips out tongues. Yes. Having, said that, they will, having said that they will cease, he just assumes that they've ceased altogether with no outside force required to do that. But uh, tongues and prophecy is a little bit different, yeah. All right. And so your understanding of this, well, I guess this whole statement is a prophecy, right? Because yeah. it's a, talking about what will happen in the future. Let's zero in on tongues here. It says tongues will cease. So mm -hmm. that means that John, you, and Greg, you both believe that at some point tongues are going to stop. And Greg, you're saying that that happened in the year 70 or thereabouts when Rome destroyed the temple. And John, you're probably going to say, well, no, they didn't cease because you still speak in tongues and uh, that uh, this is something that is yet future when Christ comes back, uh, tongues will cease. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing that's how this is going to play out. But Greg, uh, j just clarify for me, is that what you're saying is that the year 70 A.D.? Is, is the hard point when this happened, or is, is there some other date you want to associate with this? Look, I think AD 70 is, is a crucial year for, for various reasons, but perhaps to give myself a bit of leeway here. <laughs> and uh, to be, to it's, it's, be, it's all up to you. You can say whatever little, you want. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, wasn't, it really historically wasn't until AD 35 when the Romans completely... 135. Uh, yeah, 135, completely you know, raised the whole nation uh, and, yes. her homeland, yeah. and her homeland to the ground. And uh, even to the point where it still sticks today, where we call Israel and, and around there Palestine. That was a Roman, a, a derogatorily used term by the Romans to try to wipe out all memory of the land of Israel and, and her national identity and heritage, of course, which makes the modern day miracle of Israel even greater. 
So, look, in the, in the first generation, I think they were certainly given huge warning in AD 70 by 135. I personally think that the stated purpose for, for tongues to Israel had certainly stopped. Yeah. Okay, John, could you respond back on this a little bit and give us your take on, especially 1 Corinthians 13, 8, but also anything else you like? Yeah, so Greg's argument requires a couple of things that, that I think you'd want to consider in the argument. First is that in in this first section, or in, in 13, you know, 8 uh, and 9, that the idea that tongues here somehow is going to have a different timeline for stopping, going away, ceasing, that kind of thing. Even, even if the language is a little bit different, when you're reading it in flow, you, you wouldn't necessarily conclude that. One thing that I, I like to say is that I'm guilty of this, you know, absolutely, is that sometimes we'll read too much into the grammar. I think if you get down into a verse and you're really trying to dig into the grammar and stuff like that, and you come to a conclusion, and then you read the entire book and you realize there's no way that that verse can mean that, that there's a a very good verse in, in 1 John that gets done that way, you know, where, where he cannot sin, and it contradicts the rest of the of the book, right? So there's no way you can conclude that that one verse in that way. So I don't think you, I mean, Greg could be right about this. I'm not saying that he's necessarily wrong about how he's reading this. I want to see more than just that interpretation of this, right? I want to see that tongues is going to cease under a particular circumstance, right? Now, I think the way that the way that Greg is doing that, and I, I think that's probably the right approach to the argument, is to say that the only purpose for speaking in tongues is a sign to unbelieving Jews. And if that was the only purpose, well, okay, now you now you've got you're maybe halfway there, but you'd still have the problem of, okay, yes, the 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 nation there was was wiped out in 135, you know, utterly. But the Jews weren't wiped out utterly, and pretty obvious to everybody that they weren't wiped out. They weren't wiped out. There were still plenty of Jews uh, running around. In fact, the book of Hebrews is written almost certainly around the same time as that first thing, and, and it's written to a community of Jewish Christians who are going back into Judaism. And we see Clement later in the century writing you know, a lot of the same kinds of things and, uh, and quoting Hebrews because of that. So... What you need to do is you, first of all, have to show why it is necessarily true that the destruction of the, the nation in, we'll go with 135, I think I think Craig's actually got a better argument there for, than 70 AD. You'd have to show that that's necessarily the case. And I don't think you're going to be able to do that from scripture. And so, okay, maybe that's correct. Maybe that's not correct. But then the other problem is, and I think this is this is where you get into a test of the argument, and that's to, can you show that there is actually another purpose to speaking in tongues? Because if you can show that there is actually another purpose, then the argument doesn't really work anymore. And that's why, I, you know, I go to, four, you know, 14, a couple of places, um, but we'll just go to um, uh, back to verse 3. Uh, but the one who uh, prophesies speaks to people for edification, exhortation, and consolation. So we got that in our head. And then we go down to five, second half of the verse. And greater is the one who prophesies than the one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets so that, this is a purpose word, right? So what's the purpose? So that the church may receive edification. In other words, it's the church who is the target of the purpose, not unbelieving Jews. The church is the purpose. The edification of the church is the purpose. So at this point, I think you can clearly show there is actually another purpose besides a, a sign uh, to unbelieving Jews, and that's edification of the church. And, and I would say the way I would argue that is since you have another purpose, even if this other purpose went away, you still have purpose to it. When you come back into um, chapter 13, I don't think you can make that argument as well because, okay, well, the sole purpose hasn't gone away. There's a purpose. And certainly edification of the church is still something that, you know, the, that we should be doing today. So that's kind of how I would respond and how I would argue the point. 
Yeah, look, I, I, I certainly appreciate that, and uh, and I don't have any great problems with, with uh, John's viewpoint on that. The only point I again would make is the church in Corinth that Paul is writing to was this incredible mix in the very foundational days, and don't forget he's writing to the, to the church before AD 70, before the destruction of Israel, and whilst they're still, I think, uh, meeting across the road from the synagogue when a lot of Jews were coming into the church. So th the church there, I think, is, has some rather unique sort of features that don't necessarily hold true to our church meetings today. And I would only plead that we need to, to keep that intention uh, as we read through through the passage, the, the, the three chapters that Paul is addressing the, the issue uh, over. The other thing I'd be interested to ask is when you when you if you're claiming that the tongues uh, or languages, two questions I guess immediately follow, John. The languages that you you practice in your private prayer life or and and in the church, I'm assuming, you're claiming that they're not heavenly languages. We've established that that they are actually foreign languages that are what have been in use in the world or are currently in use in the world. And secondly, I'm interested, again, if you're going to, you know, correctly, you know, bring in the full witness of the scriptures, where do we find in the scriptures in one example of this particular practice that's required to build up myself in my prayer life with God? That would be my other other question. So I'd be interested in, in your response to those couple of issues. Sure. Uh, and again, this is going to get into one of those areas that I was talking about initially, where I, because there's so much baggage that comes from the, the predominance of Pentecostal and charismatic teaching that I, I have to kind of go through explanations in order to overcome that, because I don't necessarily believe what they believe. You make a great point about the, the idea that a lot of, of Pentecostals, especially not so much charismatics, but definitely Pentecostals, you know, teach that if you don't speak in tongues, then you haven't received the Holy Spirit. And if you haven't received the Holy Spirit, you're not saved. Right. Mm -hmm. And That's the doctrine of initial evidence. Yeah. yeah. And I, I wholeheartedly disagree with that. I think Paul would be appalled at that teaching. Mm. Uh, another thing is there's and this is true in both charismatic and Pentecostal churches. Historically, there's been this tremendous pressure um, to, to make people speak in tongues. That was true in the, my original uh, background. And I, I was never in the way ministry. My background is in ex-way groups, um, but that background did the exact same thing. They pressure people into, into speaking in tongues. And I rejected that pretty early on. I just felt Mm, that doesn't sound like something the Lord would do. And so, you know, I, I reject that. So if you come to, to our, our church, for instance, our online church, there are people who will speak in tongues and interpret in the church, and we teach on it periodically, but you're not going to find people being pressured into, into doing it. Yeah. We want people to, to be eager to do the things mm -hmm. of the Lord, not to, to be, have it pushed on them. And I've known too, too many people who it was such a bad experience of that, that it, you know, it was really terrible. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of this kind of stuff. So going back to, you know, to your question about the, you know, the language, the actual, you know, language is that in our uh, teaching and practice that the, the edification for yourself when you're speaking in tongues would come from, from verse three, I think, no, verse four here, because I'm, I'm reading it in a different way than you're reading it. I'm not reading it that it's necessarily a negative thing, that it truly does actually edify the person. Now, here's where I, I, I wouldn't say the thing that, that I, I'm sure that people have said to you about this, that you have to do that in order to grow spiritually. I, I don't believe that. I, I think it does bring spiritual growth, but I've known plenty of people who are very spiritually mature that had never spoken in tongues. So I don't believe that's a requirement. But, you know, one of the things that I, I believe and teach is I, I, I think speaking in tongues is a, is a good thing. It's from the Lord. It's, uh, it edifies if it's in the church and it's interpreted, then it edifies other people. But it's not an emphasis in the New Testament. I, and that this is what Sean was saying earlier, that the emphasis is on prophesying. And there, I think there's really good reason for that, that it, it's, it's a bigger deal in terms of edifying people and building people up spiritually. And, and, and I would say in my, my own 
spiritual life, prophecy has had both prophesying and receiving prophecy has had a much bigger impact on me spiritually than, than speaking in tongues. So I, I wouldn't say that. I would just simply say, this is a good thing. It edifies the, the person. If it's in their private prayer life, they're spiritually edified by it. And that's good, but it's certainly not the only way to, to grow spiritually. Well, we're going to have to cut it off here and you can catch the rest of this conversation next week. If you have an opinion or if you would like to make a comment, please come on to restitutio.org and find episode 376, Speaking in Tongues Discussion Part 1 with Truett and Dibel, and leave your comment there so that we can all benefit from hearing what you have to say. A number of people have commented in, far too many for me to read out here, uh, but I just read a, a couple of them. On John Truitt's episode, Gifts of the Spirit Are Available Today, uh, which some people have pointed out, by the way, this is, uh, this is unintentional for the record, but the actual title is 375 Gifts of the Spirit Are Available Today. And so people are, are asking the question, why Truitt did not go through all 375 of the gifts of the Spirit that are available today? Of course, 375 is the episode number, not the number of gifts that are available today. Anyhow, Michael R. wrote in saying, I have received healing, my wife, my mother, and father-in-law. My brother-in-law is a Pentecostal missionary and sees many miracles in Latin America. He says, we see fewer miracles in America because people do not believe slash have faith in God's Word. Uh, Michael, that's an interesting point you make, and it certainly is borne out by the evidence. If anyone's curious to look into more evidence on the subject of healing from a very broad perspective, I would recommend Craig Keener's two-volume tome on the subject, uh, it's simply called Miracles. It's, it's, it's more or less a defense of the New Testament miracles, but in the process of doing that, he takes a look at contemporary miracles, and he certainly does find a higher incidence in, in Africa, Asia, and Latin America than in Europe and North America. So there is certainly something to that, but it's not something that we are able to get into here today. Also on the last episode, Martin Van Rizvik, hopefully I said that correctly, wrote in saying, a really nice discourse with well-considered position taken by Greg Dibel. I tend to agree that speaking in tongues at Pentecost empowered those first Christians to go out and speak the great works of God in known languages to the people of Jerusalem and beyond. These weren't ecstatic, uncontrolled outbursts or utterances that no one could understand. Instead, the speaking was purposeful and brought people to an understanding that the prophecies about the long-anticipated Messiah had found fulfillment in this man, Jesus. However, I am still left with a question mark over why other miracles such as healing and casting out of demons continue as you assert to happen today. Many, many people sincerely pray for healing of a critically ill family member or friend, and yet these miraculous recoveries only very rarely only very occasionally happen. If these are indeed God-given moments, why do they occur so infrequently? What is the purpose of them if they do continue in modern times? Some really interesting questions there, Martin. If you think of it from a broad perspective of what's God up to, what is God achieving throughout human history, I would think that there will be some miracles that are critical, key moments in people's lives to, that set them on one path instead of another. And other people not having a miracle is a key moment in their life that could, one way or another, end up with God's ends getting achieved in that generation. Uh, You think of the butterfly effect, that one butterfly flaps its wings in one area and it causes an effect on some other part of the world. How much more when God is working through free moral agents to bring about his ends over time? So I, I don't pretend to have an answer to why God heals one person and doesn't heal another. I really don't know. But I do know that God does heal people. I have been healed. Other people I know have been healed. And when it happens, I think we should rejoice and not quench the Spirit. Jen Johnson writes in saying, Thank you, Sean and Greg, for this illuminating episode. Greg's real-life examples really drove his points home. 
I don't think I would say that Greg believes that tongues have ceased, or that he believes any of the gifts have ceased for that matter. I think he is just pointing out that he doesn't put a lot of stock in angelic language tongues, or what some might call prayer language. I found myself agreeing with a lot of what Greg said, and I like the fact that he said it in such a humble way, with an eye toward not wanting the church to be misled. I also like the fact that he highlighted an incident where God used preaching to speak directly to the situation in someone's life. It seems like sometimes people get so caught up on the more sensational spiritual gifts that they miss just how much power there is in teaching and preaching. I'm really enjoying this series. Looking forward to John and Greg's discussion. Well, Jen, now that we've had part of that discussion, I would be curious to see your thoughts, to see if you still think Greg doesn't believe tongues have ceased. Across the board, he does think tongues have ceased, but he makes room for exceptional circumstances, such as the missionary case in Papua New Guinea, where the missionaries were able to speak a foreign language. But it only happened once. It wasn't something that happened on regular Sunday services, for example. Well, that's going to have to be it for today. If you'd like to add your voice to the mix, come on to the site, restitutio.org, and comment in. Uh, Sorry for those of you whose comments I didn't get a chance to read out, but it is good to see so much engagement on this important topic. Uh, I do also want to mention that I just booked Victor Gluckin, the pastor from Rhode Island, who is going to share a different perspective on the gifts of the Spirit than either John Truitt or Greg Dibel had. So that will be coming up in a couple of weeks here, and hopefully after that, a couple of more perspectives as well. As we continue to consider this subject, the Holy Spirit, especially the gifts of the Spirit, from different angles to see which way of looking at it makes the most sense biblically, practically, and so on in our own lives. Thanks, everyone, for listening. If you'd like to support Restitutio, you can do that at our website, restitutio.org. We'll see you next week, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.